Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church with our pastor, Andy Brown. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. Every time we declare, Lord, have mercy, we're pointing back to that time when our Christ, our God, did have mercy on us. Every time we ask God to have mercy, we're remembering the cross. We're remembering that moment in time where the Word became flesh and dwelt among us also that He could give His life as a ransom for sinners like me, as a ransom for sinners like you. Do you mind taking God's Word this morning and join me in Matthew chapter 5? And today, in Matthew chapter 5, as we're traveling down the Beatitudes together, we get today, I hope that you have uh, discovered this just by the theme of our singing, by the theme of, of everything that's going so far, we get to discover today the mercies of God. And I just want us to think just a minute about the mercy of God, just about how God has so richly lavished His mercy upon us. It's been something that's in our vernacular, like we always say, God have mercy, or may the Lord have mercy on your soul. We're, we're so used to saying that, but do we really know what it is that we're saying? Back in the olden days, when a man was sentenced to death, a judge would say seven final words to this man who's been accused of this crime. After he's been accused, he's no longer accused, he's found guilty, the judge sentences him to death, bangs the gavel, and then would say, may God have mercy on your soul. And at that moment, when a man is condemned to die for his own crimes, the only appeal left to him is the mercies of God. And so what may seem like a last resort to some, pleading on the mercies of God, what may seem as a last resort for some is the first place that we who know Jesus run to. It's the first place that we who know God relish the safest refuge for us to run. And so today, is, it's so providential. As we celebrating a baptism service today, God has brought us Today, in this moment of our text where we are considering this beatitude, He has brought us to consider the mercies of God as we read the fifth beatitude. So would you join me in reading the Bible as we together hear the Word of the Lord beginning in Matthew chapter 5, and I'll begin in verse 1, and I'll go all the way through verse 7. Hear the Word of the Lord today. Seeing the crowds, He went up on the mountain. and When He sat down, His disciples came to Him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You so much for bringing us to this moment. Lord, we get to look back on this time, and perhaps some today, this morning, experience the mercies of God fresh and anew. Father, we're dependent upon You to teach us from Your Word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now this morning, I hope that you're taking notes, because as we're going to look at this one verse of Scripture, there are three truths that we get to learn this morning. And of course, 
since we're looking at one verse, since the captivating word in that one verse is mercy, you can guess what the message is about. We get to learn today about the mercies of God. So number one this morning, if you're taking notes, number one, everyone needs mercy. Everyone needs mercy. So what are we looking at in Matthew chapter 5? We're looking at this moment when Jesus has come. And he has come with a wonderful declaration. It's this declaration of blessedness where there was cursing, where there was vileness, where there was this curse that has been spread to all men because all sin. Jesus has come as a man, as the God-man, to undo everything that had been done. And his first word that he says to those of us who need him to come, he says, blessed. And in this case, he says, blessed are those who are merciful, for they are the ones who will receive mercy. And so Jesus has come with a declaration. And his declaration is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He has said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we didn't know what we were supposed to repent from before he came, but he has come, and since he has come, now we know what true life is because he has demonstrated what life is in himself taking on flesh for us. But understand this, that this declaration is not simply just a declaration that Christ says out from yonder somewhere. It's not as if he's standing some high perch in heaven, some from ivory tower declaring this word over us. This is not just some declaration from a distance. This is an invitation that he himself has become so that he could come to us and invite us with personal outstretched arms to come to him to enjoy what it is that He has to offer us. And so what has Jesus done? He has come to our depravity. He has come to the depths of our depravity in the dense, dark forest of our depravity. He has come to blaze a trail. He is the light of the world coming to blaze this trail. And this trail that He is blazing is, is leading to the day as we follow Him, as we walk with Him. Our gaze is fixed toward Him who is light. We are learning that one day this trail is going to lead to that day when the earth is filled with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that's what He's come to do. So think about the context. What is it that He's saying to us in Matthew chapter 5? Think about the context. We're learning that these eight Beatitudes are linked together to form a golden chain of blessedness. And we've been looking the first time and we've seen the first four. They deal with our relationship with God. But here we have this beatitude, blessed are the merciful, and we're going to see a change. Everything else from, this, from following this moment forward is going to change. This beatitude marks a change. So that where the first beatitudes dealt with our relationship with God, the next four beatitudes are going to show how our relationship with God interacts with our relationship with others. So it's sort of like the Ten Commandments. If you look at the Ten Commandments, there is this vertical aspect no other gods before me, not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, remember the Sabbath and all the rest. We have this vertical aspect where we are focusing all of our attention on God. And then the Ten Commandments make a change too. They say don't murder, don't steal. So in other words, there's this vertical aspect and then there's this horizontal aspect. And that's what we're seeing here. We first have to be made right with God. And then once we're made right with God, that relationship that we have with God pours itself out into how we react and relate with God others. So follow just for a moment what Jesus is saying. Follow the progression. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You see that there in verse 3. Blessed are those who are spiritually impoverished. Blessed are those who are helpless apart from God's divine intervention. Blessed are those who have nowhere else to turn and they realize it. 
Then he says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who realize how impoverished they are. Blessed are those who recognize their own sinfulness after they've seen how holy and high our God is. Blessed are those who recognize and then they have this attitude that says, oh, wretched man that I am. And then look at the next one, blessed are the meek. And we learn that meekness is where God takes us and He breaks us. So what has God been doing? He's showing us our poverty. He's causing us to mourn over our own sinfulness. And then what does that result in? And it reveals all of this so that He can break us, so that God can teach us that apart from Him there is no meaning other than Jesus. So what has God been doing to take us to this moment in verse 7? He has been stripping us of the meaning that we have made up for ourselves. He has been stripping us of any meaning that we thought that we have amassed to, to make sense of the world. He's come to us and He has stripped us of all of that. And that stripping leaves us hungering and thirsting for satisfaction. All of a sudden we realize that what it is that we've been feasting on is not getting us anywhere. What it is that we've been delighting in is no longer causing us to delight. It's giving us a stomachache instead of satisfying this hunger. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who are hungering now and thirsting for righteousness. And then we understand that we find that Christ Jesus is our righteousness. And it's at that moment, once we've come to the end of ourselves, once we have ourselves emptied out before God, then He comes in and He fills us with Himself. He fills us up so that then we can then let this light, as He's going to say later to us, shine before men. We take this truth that He has given us, that He has poured into our hearts this truth that we have received and it has this effect that you can't keep it all inside he has come so that we could go into the world and interact with the world the same way that he has interacted with us and that is that we show them mercy and listen closer today you have to understand this it's not so much that we have found truth as it is that truth has found us truth has come Bearing a face. Truth has come with a name that now we know His name is Jesus. Truth has come to us when we could not get to where He was. He has come to us so that He could teach us what it means to live. He came to us seeking and saving the lost ones. And so, it's not so much that we have found truth as it is that truth has found us. And then listen carefully. This truth that we delight in has called us to be a part of this mission that He is making because this truth that has come seeking and saving us is still the truth that is seeking and saving lost ones who will come to the end of themselves and recognize that the only solution for their souls is the satisfaction that Jesus Christ offers. In the words of David Crowder, praying to God, he says, you came for criminals. And every Pharisee, you came for hypocrites. Even one like me. You carried sin and shame, the guilt of every man, the weight of all I've done, nailed into your hands. Oh, your love that bled for me. Oh, your blood and crimson streams. Oh, your death is hell's defeat. A cross meant to kill is my victory. And I wonder this morning, is, is this the way that you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a criminal before Jesus? 
Did you see yourself before Jesus, a, a Pharisee, trying to amass for yourself your own righteousness, trying to convince yourself and the rest of the world that you were good enough to please God? Maybe you won the Vacation Bible School Award for the best attendance every year for the last 15 years, whatever the case may be. Maybe you've done all that you can to give as much money as you can to as many people as you can to help as many people to do whatever. You've amassed for yourself this righteousness that is outside of Christ. You're this Pharisee. Maybe you think better of yourself than what God says. God says that apart from Christ, there's none righteous. No, not even one. And any righteousness that you and I could even amass or, or sum up for ourselves, Jesus says it's nothing but a filthy rag. So do you see yourself in need of mercy? When was that moment in your life where you came to that moment where you realized that you were in desperate need of mercy and there was only one thing that could satisfy the longing of your souls? When was that time where you decided to, to cast yourself at His mercies? Where you decided to pour yourself out upon the altar of His mercy? When was that time do you see yourself in need of mercy? And are you willing to cast yourself upon His mercies. C.S. Lewis, towards the end of his book, Surprised by Joy, he tells that one night, the reality with which, this is his words, the reality with which no treaty can be made was upon him. And I love that. Think about the way that he put it. The reality by which no treaty can be made. In other words, what had God done with Lewis? God had strapped him and put him in a corner. God had brought him to a moment where he was hungering and thirsting for only that which Christ could offer. Had him back, and he said, and with this no treaty, it wasn't a matter of him handing his arms up and saying, take this or take that. The only solution was for Lewis to lay down his life and say, have all of me. So Lewis tells the story, the reality with which no treaty can be made was upon him. And then he came to discover that the joy that he had so longed for, the fleeting shadow that he traced all through his childhood was actually a person. It was God. Let me just declare to you, congregation, that there are thousands of others in this world, maybe even millions, maybe even a billion people or billions of people in this world just like C.S. Lewis, whom God is chasing, whom God is seeking, whom God is bringing to an end of themselves just so that He can then pour Himself and all of His mercies upon them. And who knows who they are? Walking around Turner Lake last week and, and I, as I was running the trail, I passed this guy and he was sitting there alone. And God began to prompt me, and of course I ran by. Maybe you've had that encounter as well. Well, you've had the urge to witness to someone, but you ran by. But as the trail looped around, I saw this guy again. And guess what? The mercy of our God calling me back to go and say something. And there were all of these distractions you know, here, this guy was walking alone and I was walking and trying to keep my pace and all the rest and then he stops to talk to these fishermen and you, you go through all these things in your mind. Oh, well, well I don't, he's not the one and all these. But I waited and I talked to Mario. Realized that Mario has gone through a difficult issue with his family and I don't, I, he didn't give me permission to tell you so I'm not going to. But just have a, having a conversation with a person sitting on a bench 
who got up from a bench and walked across the room and me being able to know and have this idea because I had saw myself as one who was a benefactor, a beneficiary of the mercies of God. There are a thousand others whom God is seeking ready to pour His mercies upon. And if He can pour His mercies on me, then guess what? He can pour His mercies on anybody. Because when we were lost in our sins, Christ decided to not let our sins hold Him back from coming to us to save us. Everyone needs mercy. Number two this morning. And this is the favorite point in the whole sermon. Jesus has come to give us mercy. Everyone needs mercy. Christ has come to give us mercy. There's one person who knows what you need more than anybody else. It's your Creator. It's the one who gave life to you. You may have forgotten Him, but He hasn't forgotten you. You may not pay Him any attention, but every time you take a breath, He's paying you attention. Everyone needs mercy. Jesus has come to give us mercy, and exactly what we needed, Jesus provided. Exactly what we needed, he provided, and I love this, it's not as if He just threw a bone at us and said, here, here's mercy, chase after it. Or, you know, like we looked at last week, He holds the carrot over the stick and you know, we're, we're trying to grasp it, or maybe it's a chocolate donut for you. I don't know, maybe whatever. He, and so we're always trying to strive after it and get it, but we can't quite get to what it is. He doesn't do that. He sends Himself. And understand what we're looking at here. This morning in 2017, at the end of February, here we are, looking back, peering back into a moment in time as we are here arresting our minds and arresting our attention today with what's going on in Matthew 5. Understand this. that We're just not looking at and peering back into something that happened by happenstance. You're not here this morning just by mere happenstance. And see, this is this whole mystery of, of everything that we do that we confess that God is here with us. He's here when we preach, He's here when we baptize, He's here when we sing, He's here when we have our thoughts directed towards Him. And so what we're looking at today is not just mere happenstance. Jesus is doing this. It's, he didn't just one day decide, well, you know, I think I'm going to just go here and do this. Not as if it's a plan B that Jesus came to us. God knew that when He created the world, he knew that when He created us, the way that He created us, that we would need mercy. He knew that when He created, the way that He created, that it was going to mean that His Son, His only begotten Son, God Himself was going to have to bleed and die a wretched death for you and me. But here's the beauty of it. He still chose to do it. He could have created a world a thousand different ways. He could have done things however He chose to do it, but this is the way that He chose to do it. He chose to create a world where people would reject Him, where He would still send His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him would have, have eternal life. He still chose to do it. Why? Why did He do that? You want to know the answer? Because He loves you. Because His mercy is new every morning. Because His faithfulness is great. He knew that when He created that we would need His mercy. And this Jesus came with healing in His wings. He came, as John 3.17 tells us, He came not to condemn the world, 
You see, the world was condemned already. It's not as if He comes, now the world's condemned. No, no. He came into a dark world already full of deep depravity. He came into a world stained with sin. He came into a world not to condemn the world because the world was condemned already. He, no, he came to save the world. And the Bible says all of those who receive the free salvation of the sent Son, these are the ones who will inherit eternal life. One of my favorite pastors I was reading the other day. A lot of my favorite pastors are dead guys, so when I say that, I'm talking about someone who's with the Lord. Charles Spurgeon, reflecting on Nahum 1.3, which Nahum 1.3 says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Listen to what Spurgeon says. Listen, listen, listen. You want to pray for me? Pray that I preach like what I'm fixing to read. Okay, this is fantastic. Listen to what he says. The Lord is slow to anger. When mercy comes into the world, she drives winged horses. The axles of her chariot wheels are red hot with speed. But when wrath goes forth, it tolls with tardy footsteps. God takes no pleasure in a sinner's death. God's rod of mercy is always in His hands outstretched. His sword of justice is in His scabbard held down by that pierced hand of love that bled for the sins of men. He is quick to save. He is ready to save. Here we have a God who demonstrates His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, we didn't have everything figured out. Everything wasn't right. We were still sinners. He came to save us. He came to bleed, to die, to give His perfect body so that He could take our imperfections and make us perfectly His. You see, Christ, He is the champion of our salvation. Christ, He is the captain of mercy. Look at this word really quickly. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7. Look at this word. Merciful. Do you see it? Blessed are the merciful. Now, go back to grammar school for just a minute. This word is an adjective. It's describing a certain characteristic of a person. Merciful. Did you know that this word is only used two times in the New Testament. It's used here, and it's used again in Hebrews chapter 2. Now let me tell you something about Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 is a passage, and if we had time this morning, we would go through it, and we would read it, and we would preach until the cows came home, but we, we can't. Hebrews chapter 2 is a passage that talks about the Incarnation. It's highlighting this fact that God has done this amazing thing to send Jesus, the Word becoming flesh, to dwell amongst us. It's delighting in this truth that God became man. And then at the apex, at the, at the highlight of, of chapter 2, delighting in the incarnation of God, we have verse 17. 
Listen to verse 17. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every way. So that He might become, here it is, you ready? A merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Christ is the champion of mercy. See this word here? He had to be made like His brothers in every respect. In other words, He wasn't just half man or part man or three-quarters man. He was fully God, fully man, God from God, light from light. This is the Jesus that saves. Any other Jesus is not a Jesus that saves. This, the Jesus of Genesis, the Genesis of Revelation, the Genesis of the Psalms, the Genesis of Matthew. This is the Jesus that saves. And it's only this Jesus who could come to us to grant us mercy. And He came in order that He could give us mercy. And aren't you thankful for the mercy of God? Aren't you grateful that God has come to give you mercy? That God has come and He saw our miserable condition. He saw how far we are into darkness. And instead of looking with a look of contempt, He decided to look at us with a look of love. He decided to look at us with eyes filled full of mercy. And it gets better than that. He didn't just give us mercy. He saw our miserable condition and He decided, listen carefully, He decided with mercy and from mercy to give us grace. He decided from His mercy to give us something. And the something that He gave us was grace. Now don't get those two confused. Now a lot of times, mercy and grace are used as synonyms. They're words that are alike. Mercy and grace are two different things. And when we come to explore what mercy and grace is, after we've done this exercise that our Lord has called us to today, we're going to come away if we're listening. If we're surrendered to the Holy Spirit, then we're going to come away with this rich understanding of this salvation that God has given us. Listen to me carefully. Grace and mercy are often mistaken. Listen carefully. Here's the difference. Listen, listen. It was His mercy that sought us. It was His grace that bought us. His mercy sought us. But His grace has come to buy us. To make us His very own. Not that He could just take us to heaven from a distance. Or let us do well in some other place. No. Jesus says in John 14, In my Father's house are many mansions. Now, a better translation of that is probably, and I hope that this don't disappoint some of you, but a better translation is probably, In my Father's house are many rooms. You know what that means? Put aside your American materialism or wherever you're from, whatever materialism you got. Put, listen, listen. I don't want to live next door to Jesus. I want to be in the same house with Him, don't you? If we're going to spend an eternity with Him, I want to be wherever He is. It doesn't have to be a mansion. It can be a tree house. As long as Jesus is there, I'm going to be happy. So Jesus says He has come to take us and not just let us have a little taste of salvation, but He has made us joint heirs with Christ. He's ruling from the throne. Guess what? We're ruling with Him. His mercy has sought us. His grace has bought us. Both of those things go together. Listen to D.A. Carson. Probably one of the most prophetic New Testament biblical scholars alive today. Listen to what he says. 
Grace is a loving response when love is undeserved. And mercy is a loving response prompted by the misery and helplessness of the one on whom the love is to be showered. Grace answers to the undeserving. Mercy answers to the miserable. You see, mercy binds the wounds. Grace makes sure that the broken will never be broken again. Jesus has come in mercy so that He could give us grace. And then what does He call us to do? What does He say? Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are you who are merciful. He says, after granting us so great a salvation, what does He say? He says, as the Father sent Me. And this is John's version of the Great Commission. He says, as the Father sent Me, so send I you. So that begs the question, how in the world did the Father send the Son? It was His mercy that sought us. It was His grace that bought us. And what does He say? He says that we then who have received mercy, we're the ones who are the merciful. We who have had the mercy of God displayed and poured out in our hearts, we who have received mercy, we are the merciful. Christ has come, and what has He said? He said, come you sinners, poor and needy. And so, then He commands us to go and do likewise. He commands us to go into the world, to the hedges, to the highways, to those who need mercy. And guess who that is? That's everybody. He's commanded us to go and to, to have the view of the world that He has of the world. To go and to see the people in the world as those in need of mercy, as those who are sheep without a shepherd, as those who are sick people, who just need a doctor? Who just needs a remedy? Who just needs the satisfaction that only Jesus can offer? And that's our command. That's our commission number three this morning. Those who have received mercy, they are the merciful. Who are the merciful? Well, we know they're blessed. We know they're going to receive mercy. But who are they? They are those who have received mercy. If the other Beatitudes weren't sharp enough, this one just takes the knife and digs it into our hearts a little deeper. Because this beatitude forces us to search our own hearts. Now listen carefully. Don't interpret this verse outside of the Gospel. Don't think that, well, if you're just merciful, you look at it, it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Listen, we want mercy, so if I can just drum up this merciful attitude, this merciful condition, if I can just have this disposition of mercy where I'm merciful every now and then that's enough. No, no, that's not the Gospel. Those who have received mercy are those who are merciful. We are able to extend mercy to others because, listen, we understand and we have embraced the mercy that God has extended towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so what did He do? He has then poured Himself out into our hearts so that He could remake us so that He could conform us to His own image, so that then He could then take us and remake us entirely. So you can't be merciful in the truest sense, in the way that God desires. You cannot be merciful unless you have received the mercy of God. And it's those who are most affected by the Gospel are those who are most affected 
for the Gospel. We receive mercy. And it's because we receive mercy that we give mercy. So the question is, are we merciful people? And if not, we've not experienced the mercy of God. If we are those who are quick to anger, quick to harbor grudges and bitterness, not quick to forgive, we've not experienced the mercy of God. You see, some have the opposite disposition. Some even think that they're Christian, but they are not merciful. They would rather see sinners be damned. They would rather see the world burn. They would rather see their lost neighbors lost in the lake of fire forever. That's their attitude. Now, Christians do this, I think, one of two ways. The first way, that, and it's both with their tongue. The first way that Christians do it is that they lash the lost with their tongue. Either publicly or privately, they're lashing the lost. Instead of seeing people the way that Jesus saw them. Everyone in need of mercy. They lash the lost. They do it publicly. Or they do it privately. They get in their little holy huddles. And they're quick to gossip about someone who's done this, but very shallow when it comes time to pray for them. Shallow when it comes time to confront them. Shallow when it comes time to say what it is that they need. And so the second way, of course, that they use their tongues is they use their tongues to just sit silent in their mouth. Every time we let our tongues sit silent in our mouth, instead of sharing Jesus with our lost neighbors, we are basically saying to them, I have eternal life, and that eternal life is for me, it's not for you. So we say to them without saying to them, you're going to hell and I'm fine with it. It's better to be merciful. It's better to have the attitude that Spurgeon commends to us. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees imploring them to stay if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I once heard a story about William Booth. who was the founder, of course, of the Salvation Army. Booth lived in, in London and every year, every Christmas in London, they'd have a celebration. And the churches would send representatives out to the people that have come and gathered themselves to receive an invitation. The churches would go and send people out to invite the people to come celebrate with them. So the Anglican representative stood up. And he said, all of you who are Anglican, come with me. And then the Catholics, they said, all of you who are Catholics, come with me. And then the rest of the churches in the city, they all followed suit. The Lutherans stood up, the, the Methodists stood up, and all the rest of them stood up. But there were still a bunch of people waiting around, looking, and William Booth looks around and he sees all these people and he stands up and he shouts, all of you who belong to no one, come with me. 
That's what Jesus has done for us. He saw us where we didn't fit, where we didn't belong, where we were the miserable, the deplorables, and He has come to show us mercy in giving His own life, heaven's greatest treasure, so that He could make us become the righteousness of God. You see, this is who we are. Blessed are the merciful. They're the ones who receive mercy. We are those who are God's salvation army. We are those who are controlled by the love of Christ. We are those who have concluded that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sakes died and was raised. 2 Corinthians 5. We are then God's ambassadors standing in this world to cry out to a world in darkened, to cry out to a world that is in desperate need of mercy, that is in desperate need of salvation. We are God's ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ as if God was making His appeal through us. We implore others on behalf of Christ Jesus, be reconciled to God. He has given us this ministry of reconciliation. He has given us this ministry of mercy so that we can say that there is forgiveness, there is hope, and it's only found in Jesus' name. The world is feasting on that which doesn't satisfy. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So we go into the world and we tell the world in the most loving way that we know, what you're feasting on will not satisfy you. But I know someone who will satisfy. One who will satisfy every longing of your heart. One who that came seeking and saving us. I went up to Mr. Mario Victor and you know what I said to him? You know how I opened the conversation? Have you heard any good news lately? You know what he said? He said, no. I said, boy, have I got some news for you. Listen carefully. God loves you. Don't miss it. And He has a plan to give you life. Not He has a wonderful plan for your life. That's after you're saved. But initially, He has a plan to give you life. That's the message that we have. To go into the hedges. To go out to the highways. Because we have received mercy. We are merciful people. And there's a world full of people. There's a community full of people who need to know mercy. And how are they going to know of the mercy of God unless you tell them? Unless we go and fill this baptistry up with people who say, now I belong to Jesus. So this morning, search your heart. This morning, God knows. Are you in need of mercy? You're invited this morning to come to a Savior who is full of mercy. He is more ready to forgive than you are even to ask of His forgiveness. He is more ready and He has demonstrated, He has moved heaven and earth to bring you to Himself. Are you needing this morning to be merciful? Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. They shall receive mercy. Would you pray with me? Lord, have mercy on our souls.
And we're thankful that when we declare, Lord, have mercy, we are declaring that you have had mercy on us. You have sent your Son to be our Savior. And then while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, Father, I pray for those within the sound of my voice. Father, for those who need mercy, may they come to a fountain filled with mercy and find the satisfaction of their souls as they cast themselves upon the mercies of Jesus, as they believe in Him for the first time. Father, for those of us who need to be merciful, would You help us, Lord God, in Your power to see the world as You see them and to spread the message of mercy and hope and grace Jesus. Have your way in our hearts this morning. Convict us of our sin. Call sinners to your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray God will use this message for His glory in your life. If you would like more information, please feel free to contact us at info at OxfordBaptistChurch.com. Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.